that's something that our company really tries to specialize in is the community outreach, the uh, personal approach, and really showing people that you do care about their concerns. This is the Contractor's Corner podcast series from Solar Power World. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Contractor's Corner podcast. I'm Kelsey Misbrenner, and this is quite an exciting month for the solar plus storage industry. By the time this episode airs, the president will have signed the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA. This bill includes a ton of incentives for solar and storage and beyond. Most importantly to the residential sector, it raises the ITC to 30% and extends it until 2033. For the commercial segment, it also raises it to 30%. There are some prevailing wage and apprenticeship requirements Those pieces are going to be a little bit of a work in progress as the Department of Treasury kind of defines the metrics and the industry figures out how to satisfy them. Um, But I would assume most companies are going to try and meet those goals so that they can collect the full 30%. There are also some adders for additional credits Those are based on where projects are cited, Um, for example, on tribal lands or low-income communities, um, federal housing, and brownfields. Other adders are available for domestic content use, um, which should become easier thanks to another part of the bill, which adds a lot of incentives for manufacturing different solar components which includes inverters, panels, some elements of trackers, and more. A couple of other pretty groundbreaking provisions in this bill. Um, The addition of direct pay for nonprofit entities, state or local governments, rural electric cooperatives, tribal governments, and some other entities, they now can be the owner of a solar project instead of going through a PPA to make the project pencil out, working with a tax equity partner. So this is expected to just give nonprofit entities far more options for going solar. Um, It could allow for smaller projects that in the past tax equity partners may not have been interested in because they were not profitable enough. This just opens up far more options for nonprofit organizations to go solar and collect all of the benefits themselves. Another huge provision is the fact that commercial solar projects can now choose whether to receive the production tax credit or the investment tax credit. The production tax credit is especially attractive for higher output and lower cost projects. So very large utility scale arrays, will definitely be opting for the PTC over the upfront investment tax credit. So just another way that solar developers can see even more of a profit on these projects. I've been writing and reading a lot about 
transmission and interconnection issues over the past year. And the IRA now allows commercial projects to include interconnection costs in the ITC tax credit for projects that are under five megawatts. And the last really important point that the um, tax attorney that I interviewed told me about in this bill is the new option to transfer these tax credits after 2022. And that includes both the production tax credit and investment tax credit. So in the past, only large entities like banks and insurance companies had enough tax liability to be able to finance large solar projects all on their own. With transferability, individuals can actually possibly invest and finance solar projects through things like investment funds. The attorney I interviewed said this provision could really help out smaller projects that might not have been able to access funding from one of the big banks for a project before this. So those are the top line um, highlights. I'm sure there's still a lot to dig into and discover, and we at Solar Power World will be working hard on that. Um, but for now, you can read my extended story on the bill and its solar and storage implications at solarpowerworldonline.com. And um, please do send us emails with your questions and we will try to answer them. All right, so moving right along um, into our interview this month, I had a great conversation with Carson Harkrader over at Carolina Solar Energy. Although federal solar policy is of course, extremely important as we're seeing this month, state level and local policymaking is also crucial for solar success. And Carson and her father have been deeply involved in solar policy in North Carolina and in all of the states that Carolina Solar Energy operates because they know that solar requires a lot of work at the state house and on the ground in communities to make sure that conditions are favorable. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hey everybody, I'm here today with Carson Harkrader. She is the CEO of Carolina Solar Energy based in Durham, North Carolina. Welcome to the show, Carson. Thank you. Carolina Solar Energy, you, your team is developing projects in three states, I understand, North Carolina, Virginia, and Kentucky. Can you tell me why those three states and why not South Carolina? Yeah, great question. So Carolina Solar Energy was founded here in North Carolina by my father, and he started the company back in the early 2000s, and it was part of a small group of people that helped North Carolina pass legislation that was the first uh, renewable energy portfolio standard in the Southeast. And he basically did that because North Carolina is our home state where I grew up. And uh, we had a legislature at the time that was willing to pass that legislation that then uh, went on to help North Carolina become one of the top states in the country for solar energy. So we were, the company was born and bred here. We, uh, most of our projects that we developed are located here. 
And we sort of spread from North Carolina, first up into Virginia, and then about three years ago over into Kentucky. And we have never gone into South Carolina. We've looked at it a number of times. I was always uh, against the idea, mostly because, well, for two reasons. One, that there were just a lot of solar developers already very active in South Carolina and a lot of competition. And our company has always tried to find little niches where we're hopefully early to the market and maybe get out in front of a lot of the other developers who will come along behind us. And the other reason is that here in the Southeast, as you probably know, in the regulated markets in North Carolina, South Carolina, you know, the rest of the Southeast going further South, in these regulated markets, you have to be so in touch with the legislatures and the utilities commissions in the states where you're operating. It really takes a lot of time and resources. Whereas by moving up into Virginia and Kentucky, the areas that we went into in those states are covered by the PJM interconnection region. And so we get a lot of coverage in PJM because the ISO, PJM, sets a lot of the rules that regulate how we operate. And then, of course, the projects are able to sell their power freely into the market. And so in those states, it's a little easier to get into a new state. We still do a lot of policy work, especially in Kentucky. We've done a lot of policy work, but it doesn't feel like we have to have our finger on the pulse every day like we might need to in a state like South Carolina. And, you know, just with limited resources, that was kind of the direction that made sense to me. Tell me about your path to solar. I know that your dad started this company, but what was your, what were your interests before joining the company? Yeah. So I actually started out my career out of college in international development. And I was looking at, you know, uh, developing countries and how to help them get on a path to, uh, you know, democracy and uh, better ways of life. I, in college, I had been really involved with a group that was helping get independence for a tiny little country called East Timor. And uh, the year I graduated from college, which was 1999, so I guess that shows how old I am, but Uh, that country actually got independence. It was a really exciting uh, situation. And I was over there working, but I just sort of had this feeling that this was not going to be the long-term career for me, that it was great as a really young person, but that I wanted to be doing something that where there was more of a business aspect to it. And my dad recommended renewable energy all the way back then. I still remember he said, "You, you should try renewable energy. It's a growing field. And I did and got into the industry from the ground up. I was an office manager at a renewable energy company uh, over in Australia. And then from there, I joined GE Wind Energy and was at GE Wind for eight years. And in the meantime, my dad was starting this solar company in North Carolina and sort of said from time to time, hey, you know, you could you could come home, you could work with me. And I, I really did not uh, put a lot of stock in that idea at all. But I eventually did an MBA and one of the MBA classes was about mid-sized businesses, small to mid-sized businesses, and had one class that was about family business. And the professor was going through, you know, what are the best practices for a second generation child to join their family business? And as he was talking through all these different best practices and the reasons why these you know, these items were important. If you were going to join the family business, I was realizing I was checking every box. And that kind of helped me think a little bit more about coming home and working with my dad. And I eventually decided to do that. And that was what really got me into solar. 
And it's been interesting, you know, the wind energy business in the U.S. has obviously continued to flourish, but it's been really exciting to join a new new area of renewable energy. I'm very passionate about renewables in general. And I always knew working for GE Wind that developing wind projects is an extremely hard and challenging thing to do. I really felt for our customers and all the challenges they went through to develop their projects. And I think solar, while challenging, certainly, um, it is easier than developing wind projects. There's less capital involved. There's less impact on the communities. And it's it's really been an amazing, amazing ride. And I've now been home a number of years and um, yeah, fully, fully versed in solar. So I think that's, that's probably where I'll be for the foreseeable future. Wow, that is quite a journey. And what an amazing experience just out of college to say that you helped a country get independence like that. I mean, that's just wild. It was really, really wild. The country was really starting from scratch. And the woman who I was working for, she was uh, an expat. She had grown up in East Timor and and then lived in Australia as an expat. And she was just a a real powerhouse. And um, I was her first employee and was really fortunate to work with her and just help support her in basically everything she did from, you know, getting her lunch to uh, helping write reports that really uh, summarized and explained all the work that she was doing so that she could get funding. Um, You know, she she was the one talking to the World Bank and the UN and all these groups. And then, but she needed someone to write up exactly what they were going to use their funding for and to make it look like, you know, a nice document. And I was able to do that and really support her as she grew this incredible organization. Yeah, it was, it was really exciting. And, and, you know, timing in life is often everything. And, um, and that was pretty neat, pretty neat timing there. Yeah. yeah. So speaking of rewarding times, what has been the most rewarding moment of your career with Carolina Solar Energy so far? I worked on a project back in 2016. So coming up on a few years ago now, but we had a 50 megawatt project in Eastern North Carolina. It was in what's called the extraterritorial jurisdiction of a very small town called Grifton. And we needed to get our permit to um, have the project be able to move forward. And we had some pretty staunch local opposition. There was a real estate appraiser who was very concerned about the value of his home and the homes in his neighborhood. And we really had to take a lot of time with that project, working with the mayor, working with the city council, talking about the benefits uh, of the project to the town. And we were able to show that if the town annexed this project, this small town that had really been on hard times was going to make over 30 years, I think it was a little over a million dollars in increased property tax revenue. The county was going to get a bit more than that. So combined, it was going to be over 2 million for the regional area. And it was a really amazing experience for me. I mean, we had city council meetings where there were, you know, a hundred people there to oppose our project, very upset and concerned. And by, you know, bringing in our expert witness, talking about what the project was going to be, sharing photos, sharing images, uh, we were able to slowly explain to people, you know, the very low impact that the solar project was going to have. We proposed some pretty big setbacks from the neighborhood that was the most concerned. And then the neighbors on the other side of the project actually said, we really want this project. We love the fact that this area is quiet 
And we want it to stay that way. And we'd much rather have the solar project come in than a big residential development or any other, you know, agricultural or other use that could be here. And so just through working through things step by step, we were able to get our permit. And we then worked with the town to do some neat projects there. And um, the mayor is still a good friend. And I spoke to him the other day. So that was just an incredibly rewarding experience. Grifton is about three hours east of North Carolina and of Durham. I mean, and I think I ended up going out there almost 20 times over the course of close to a year and getting that permit and then being able to go back later on uh, and see the project built and talk to the local people. Uh, We were part, uh, we've been sponsors of their local shad festival every year since then we went out our, my team and I went out and ran in their mud run that was part of the, um, Shad Festival and just had a blast. And it's really, it's really, really rewarding being part of these local communities and hearing the mayor now talk about the tax revenue from the project and what it's meant to the town. We get to know, we get to know the local folks. We get to know our landowners really well. Obviously, we get to know the local restaurants, uh, all the different foods that people eat locally, the celebrations they have. And it's really, it's, it's rewarding on, on so many ways and, um, and really excited to see the project in the ground. Another rewarding moment I would mention, we talked before about how Carolina Solar Energy has some projects in Kentucky, and that was something that one of my staff members came up with. We were looking for where we should go next after Virginia, and we had said no to a few different states that just didn't feel right uh, to me. And he suggested Kentucky and said, hey, you know, there's this piece of PJM that's in Kentucky and I don't know that there's much solar going on there. And we looked closely at it and the terrain felt a lot like North Carolina. It felt a lot like what we were used to. And we went in and I really wasn't sure if it was a good idea because no one else was really there at the time. But we got really involved in the local politics and had a lot of meetings with local politicians and obviously, you know, signed up our landowners. And now our projects there are getting ready to go into construction. So, and, and there's a lot of solar development in Kentucky now. So that was another really rewarding experience of being able to kind of see something before it happens and then get to watch it happen. It's, it's really rewarding. I'm sure that meant a lot to your colleague who made that suggestion that, I mean, that's transformative to add another state. Yeah, absolutely. We'll be right back. Today's podcast is sponsored by Soltech. Soltech is a global and vertically integrated company specializing in solar tracker manufacturing. Soltech has a track record of 17 gigawatts around the globe and a purchasing capacity of over $350 million. Learn more about Soltech at soltech.com. This podcast is also sponsored by American Wire Group. American Wire Group is a single source supplier for wire, cable, and accessory solutions for the power transmission, distribution, substation, solar, wind, and battery energy storage markets. American Wire Group is empowering a better world. For more information, go to buyawg.com. That's B-U-Y-A-W-G.com. This podcast is also brought to you by Scanafly. Want to survey more sites per day, searching for better accuracy? There's nothing more frustrating than showing up on install day and finding the layout doesn't fit. Scanafly's survey and design platform solves these problems. Scanafly, the only drone-based solar software, will help you survey three to five times more projects per day while getting perfectly accurate measurements and minimizing roof time. 
new to drones? Contact them on their website and take a free course to become a solar drone pilot today at scanaflight.com slash surveyor dash associate dash program. Now back to the show. I noticed on your website, you have a submission form for people with land that they're looking to perhaps lease to you guys. Yeah. Can you tell me more about how that process works and if you see a lot of interest on there? Yeah, we do. Um, most of the landowners that we sign up are landowners where we have identified a particular location and then we find ways of getting in talk, contact with them. But we definitely have projects where folks have filled in that form on the website and sent it to us. And, you know, as most developers will know, the very first thing we do is to look and see what utility service area they're in, what transmission or distribution lines might be close to their uh, their property. Or for us, we pretty much require the transmission or distribution line to be to cross the property itself. And then we let them know, you know, either, yep, we're looking, you know, this, this is a utility that we're working with, a service territory that we're working in, and this line uh, is something we want to investigate. And then we go from there and might do either a pre-request with the utility or go to one of our engineers and ask them what they think about this interconnection. Uh, and if everything continues positively, you know, we might move forward with the project. We do get a lot of inquiries about residential solar, and we have to just let people know we don't do that and the other uh, you know local companies that we really recommend but uh, we also get folks who have just really small parcels of land and the industry has moved as most people know you know 10 years ago we were mostly doing five megawatt projects and now it's very hard to even just get a 50 megawatt project built most of the companies that we sell our projects to really want 80 to 100 plus megawatts as an absolute minimum so, you know, that requires a pretty big tracts of land. And so we filter for that as well. Tell me about the most unique project your company has completed. Yeah, so I think it's not a project we've completed, but we're working on something pretty new. From our work in Kentucky, we got connected with a, a company that owns land that was formerly a coal mine. And uh, it turns out there was a transmission line on the property, as there is on a lot of these old coal sites. And the area was uh, reclaimed, the reclamation was complete, and the, and the area was pretty flat. And so we spent a lot of time going over the different land that they had and, and finding the area that was flat enough that had the transmission on it. And we're now in the PJMQ and in the process of developing a uh, what will be a former coal to solar site in in Kentucky. And we're so excited about that. I think, you know, it's it's easy to understand why that why that feels so exciting, you know, bringing economic development to areas that that really need it, that saw a lot of activity when coal was a bigger resource that was, you know, making more sense economically and to be able to bring solar there and to help a new community benefit from solar. Yeah, we're, we're all super excited about it. That's pretty good timing too with the national political scene right now where Manchin has decided to endorse a climate bill um, yes. and kind of take another coal state, West Virginia, into the future along with everyone else. Yeah, yeah. You know, what we see is that the, the solar is not going to replace coal on a strict economic basis for the for the 
landowners or the counties that were used to the coal revenues, you know, solar energy is is not going to make it all up. I think you need solar combined with other things. So I don't want to say it's going to be a complete panacea, but, um, but yeah, obviously we're, we're absolutely thrilled with Manchin's decision and um, really excited about what that's going to mean for renewables across the country. And, and hopefully uh, it'll give a boost for some of these, um, these uh, projects in Appalachia as well. So what is preventing you from developing more projects? Yeah, it's a great question. The, you know, technically, physically, the biggest constraint that we face is interconnection. And that falls into a few categories. You know, the best sites for solar are those that don't require big upgrades and hopefully any upgrades to the transmission grid. So if we can find a project that can use what we term very non engineering term, but available capacity on a particular transmission line or distribution line is all you have to pay for is the actual cost to interconnect, you know, add new hardware to interconnect the project to the grid. You don't have to pay for big grid upgrades. And most of our projects, you know, across the Southeast have been those types of projects. And those projects are harder and harder to find as more solar and and wind has gone in to the grids that quote unquote available capacity has has been used up. And so that makes projects more expensive to interconnect because you need to pay for grid upgrades. Those grid upgrades take time. So I think, um, you know, one thing about the, the, the bill that Manchin has agreed to, you know, it is unfortunate that transmission was taken out of it. And um, we, we definitely, you know, it's very exciting that some areas such as MISO, you know, has just announced a really enormous commitment to investing in, in the grid. We know ERCOT did that, gosh, I don't know if that was 15 or more years ago, that allowed the penetration of much higher levels of renewables in ERCOT. But we definitely see transmission as probably the number one issue preventing uh, more projects. Another thing that I'm I don't know if I could say I'm hopeful about, but another thing I think our industry really needs to focus on is um, the agrovoltaics issue and how do we show that our projects don't just build a fence around some solar panels and then sort of become cut off from the community. In other words, you know, we know our projects are going to create a lot of tax space. We know they're going to create jobs, especially during construction, but I just don't think going forward, that's going to be enough. I think we have to think more and more about how do we combine solar and agriculture? How do we continue to show jobs and show, frankly, you know, whether it's, you know, food generation or, or whatever kind of agriculture we can show on these projects. I think for communities and especially agricultural communities where our projects are based, that we are serious about being parts of the community. I think we're really going to need to show that. I know I actually listened to a former podcast you did with the owner of or CEO of Green Lantern, and he mentioned he was doing a project with cattle. Um, there are sheep that that graze on a, a bunch of my company's projects. We own a small portfolio of our own projects that have sheep on them. But I think going to the cattle and, and other crops that that these agricultural communities are are more used to and and really feel that those crops and those um, those animals are part of their community, being able to show that solar is not going to just take that land out of those former uses, I, I think is incredibly important. I can't say that it's at this moment preventing us from installing more projects, but 
I just think it's something we need to to start heading off now. And I know, you know, NC State University is doing some work on this. A lot of different places are, are working to figure this out. So I'm I'm hopeful and I haven't thought yet about how our company can play a part in that. We have designed uh, pollinators at a, a lot of our projects. All of our projects in Kentucky have pollinators uh, designed on them. The, some of the projects in Virginia do. We know that the pollinators will really help uh, pollinator populations generally and surrounding agricultural uses in specific. Um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm hopeful that the industry will move more in that direction and that will help take away some headwinds against the industry going forward. Yeah. This brought to mind recently driving through either somewhere in the middle of Michigan or Pennsylvania, somewhere very rural. And I saw signs that said no industrial solar. And it really was kind of like shocking to me that people are seeing it as some bad industry. um, And that definitely just underscores your point that there needs to be much more working together and showing that it's not just panels and a fence and gravel. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think some of that is just simply, you know, just people, you know, it's very hard. Once, once a neighbor decides they don't want a project, it's very, very hard to change their minds. You kind of see how human psychology works and that, you know, once a mind is made up, it is very hard to change it. And so I, I think some of that is that just, okay, we don't want this. We don't like this. We've decided that. So what labels are we going to put on it? What things are we going to say about it to convince others to agree with us? Um, But yeah, I agree. The more we can do to uh, counter that narrative with, uh, you know, information about what the project will actually do, I think it, it really is important. Um, and that's, that's something that our company really tries to specialize in is the community outreach, the uh, personal approach, and really showing people that you do care about their concerns. I think just being able to talk to people and really listen to their very specific concerns uh, is incredibly important because people have real questions. This is something that's very new for a lot of these communities. And, and it's really important for us to answer them. But yeah, if someone just wants to put a tag of industrial solar on it, at a certain stage, it just becomes challenging if, if people have made up their minds. So that's that's a big part of the kind of the work that we do. And, uh, you know, timing, coming back to timing, it's very important, getting in early and having those personal conversations to the extent you can. And, and you don't always win, but we, we try really hard. Well, on the more hopeful and forward-thinking note, what are some future product trends that you're looking forward to in the solar industry? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. I'm going to, I'm going to do a, uh, a really, really easy answer on this one, which is storage. I think, um, you know, we were hearing six, seven years ago, a lot about the duck curve in California and these concerns about, you know, how are we going to integrate large volumes of solar and wind and, intermittency issues and just how how are we going to get through this? And I didn't foresee the rise of the batteries, um, but it certainly happened over the last, you know, five years. It's just incredible how the cost curve has come down. Obviously we still have some issues to address with batteries, but I'm very hopeful that as more and more projects, solar projects are paired with batteries and there's more standalone storage on the grid. I just hope that this technology 
will really, really help with the integration of solar, with the cost-effective integration of, of all forms of renewables. And the grid will just, you know, the, the utilities will accept this technology more and more. Regulators will understand it more and it will just allow us to reach uh, greater penetrations of renewables and uh, really, you know, ensure that renewables are, are helping the grid and are able to power the grid when people need it most, which obviously at a fundamental level we, we have to do. So, so I'll, I'll give the layup answer of, of energy battery storage for the future trend. I think that maybe the last five people I've interviewed have said that. So this is yeah. hotly anticipated by everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, it's already it's already happening. I think, you know, basically every every interconnection application that's submitted now is pretty much uh, with battery storage. But I, I think the you know, the rollout, of course, is a little bit behind the interconnection applications. But um, yeah, yeah. In the next two or three years, we'll see so many hundreds of megawatts of storage going in and I think just two or three years from now will be in an even more, what should I call it, mature, mature technology status. So yeah, really exciting. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Carson. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Kelsey. It was great talking with you. This has been another edition of Contractors Corner. Join us each month as I talk to solar contractors across the country. Thanks for listening to the Solar Power World podcast. Visit us online at solarpowerworldonline.com for more great featured content and breaking solar news. See you back here next month.